Well, this weekend, I want to speak about finding truth amid controversy. And really, I find this message very difficult to speak about because on the one hand, I feel really, really passionate about this and yet at the same time, I don't want to stir up a controversy, okay? <laughs> you know, when we read the Bible in our modern day context in the 21st century, we, we oftentimes fail to understand that many of the things that Jesus said were uh, highly controversial because there's been such a passage of years and we feel as though that Jesus is speaking to them and not speaking to us. And yet, it, that, yet it, was, it was true that Jesus was very controversial uh, to his hearers. And as a result, right, he would evoke this incredible wrath and anger from the religious establishment, so much so to the point that they had no, they, you know, they were compelled to crucify this man. They had to see this man dead, right? And yet at the same time, Jesus was never controversial towards the, the Roman Empire that was ruling at that time. You know, but instead, he was primarily stirring up the religious establishment of his days. And here's the thing, Jesus wasn't trying to be controversial just for the sake of being controversial. He wasn't a difficult man. He wasn't a nasty person. He wasn't somebody that was just out to create trouble. But the intention the Lord had in stirring up controversy is because sometimes truths get so clouded by tradition and by religious practices and religious legalism that without the controversy, God cannot unveil those truths to us again. Amen. Here's the matter of the fact. As Christians, we love truth. Amen. But there's, we have a problem with truth because whenever the God reveals a truth to us, we take it, we treasure it, we encase it in a little display case, we put it on a pedestal, we put guardrails around it, and then we put a covering and a tent over it, then we put a fencing around it, and before you know it, we can't even see the truth anymore. And that's what happens in every revival. God restores the truth, but then we build all these trappings around it. A bunch of, you know, works and rules and principles and measures and guidelines and the truth becomes completely obscured and we no longer see it. And all of a sudden, God has to bring controversy again to strip away those man-made things that we have placed around the truth He wants to bring to us. Amen. You know, I oftentimes wonder if Jesus were to appear in our present day mode, then what, how, what would He say to the church? Would we be stirred up? Would He, be treated, would he speak in the, in the same manner of controversy to us as He did in the first century when He walked upon this earth? And I think that, you know, perhaps the Lord would do that. Perhaps when the Lord, if the Lord walks in today, I wonder how many Christians would be welcoming towards Him when they begin to hear Him preaching about our treasured traditions. Amen. When He says something controversial, and perhaps the, you know, I, I, I hope not, but I wonder if the church would again participate in crucifying Him. The people that were supposed to receive Him and recognize Him, crucified Him 2,000 years ago. And I wonder if today, if Jesus were to appear, we would crucify Him all over again because He would again be controversial in stirring up truth amongst us. Amen. And this weekend, what I want to do is I want to look at a series of controversies that Jesus stirred. And this is found in Mark chapter 2, <clears throat> all the way to Mark chapter 3, verse 6. And there are three main controversies that, were contained, that are contained in these verses. And these recorded controversies are not random. It was not just random recollections of what Jesus did. But each of them, I believe, deals with a very specific area that the church likes to forget about. If the church likes to embellish, there are specific areas that somehow the church has a tendency to over and over again cloud it so that the Lord has to bring controversy into these areas because we keep, keep forgetting the truth. We keep getting detracted in these particular areas. 
The first controversy that was stirred up in Mark chapter 2 has to do with whom the company that Jesus kept. And we know this, Jesus was always amongst the sinners and this has to do with people. I'd like for you to turn with me to Mark chapter 2 and I want to look at a couple of verses from verse 14 to verse 17. In verse 14, it tells us that Jesus passed by and he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office and he said to him, follow me. I love those words, follow me. And he arose and he followed him. Now it happened as he was dining in Levi's house that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples. And there, and there were many. And listen to this, and they followed him. Isn't it amazing? One man followed him and then after that, there's a little statement that says, they all followed him. That's incredible. And then in verse 16, it tells us, when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, how is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You see, the controversy here is the people that Jesus is hanging out with. And I think that this has application for us in looking at the fact that who is our target audience? Who is God calling us to? And it's really about people and it's about the people that do not yet know Jesus. Amen. Now in this account, Jesus reaches out to Matthew, the tax collector. He opens the door and then all of a sudden, you have all these tax collectors and sinners that were coming and sitting around Jesus. Why is this so controversial? And maybe we've forgotten the context of it. Maybe we have sugar-coated our, our visual, our mental picture of what this looks like. But let me describe this for us. Number one, who are the tax collectors? They're not some nice guy dressed, you know, in a shirt and in a tie like we see today, you know, in a suit coming and saying, hey, you know, your tax uh, for this year based on your income is, 20, you know, uh, 8%, so this is how much we have to collect from you. No, they're not like that, okay? A closer picture to what the tax collectors would be would maybe be your along who comes to the house, you know, and throws paint in the house and says, pay up with exorbitant interest, collecting what they should, collecting way more than what they should be collecting. Think about hard, unscrupulous, dishonest bullies. They extort, they don't ask nicely, they threaten, they beat up people and in all in order to enrich themselves. You see, to, in order to become a tax collectors in those days, you didn't have to be well educated. You just have to be the highest bidder to the Roman Empire and says, I will collect this much for you. And then once they, once they get the authority, for, you know, once they win the bid, then they collect way more in order to enrich themselves. And, and it's not just that. The Bible tells us that the sinners were around Jesus. You see, there's something we all often like to say. We say, oh, we are all sinners and washed by the blood of Jesus. But behind the back of our minds, there's a sense of the fact that, hey, we are respectable sinners. You know, we're pretty good sinners. All we have is we have some character flaws here, a little, there, a little, and we think like that, right? But that's not true in this case uh, with... Um, that's, that's not true in this case because when the Bible says this, that, you know, that uh, Jesus was with, the, with, the, with sinners, he's talking, about the, he's talking about sinners with, with a great notoriety. These are men who are immoral, who are known to be corrupt. Perhaps they are pimps or they control gangs or syndicates. They are cheats, they are swindlers, they are what we consider the worst amongst the worst and they are notorious sinners. And in the Jewish society, both these groups of people were excommunicated from the whole Jewish faith and the Jewish community. You don't talk to them, you don't associate, you don't do business with them, you don't invite them to your house and you don't touch any of their family members. They were considered Gentiles who were unsaved. 
They were considered to have been excommunicated from the Jewish faith. And that's what it is. And here comes Jesus and he goes and he hangs out with them. He eats with them. And in sharing a meal with these people, he's signifying that he's accepting and receiving them and extending friendship to them. And this was unacceptable. You see, in Leviticus 15, verse 7, and Numbers 19, verse 22, these laws tell us very clearly that when you associate with these unclean people, then you have made yourself unclean. And guess what? Jesus went ahead and associated with them, and Jesus became unclean according to the law. I don't know how this will sound, but Jesus broke the law. He became unclean. I wonder if we would be willing to do that. I wonder what that would look like for us. And then, you know, here's another dimension. The people that were criticizing Jesus were called Pharisees. And, and Pharisees mean separated ones. They were people that separated themselves to the Lord, who have consecrated themselves. Now, if you think today of a pastor or a full-time staff who have given up a career on the outside and given themselves to serve the Lord, there is sacrifice needed. There's dedication. And let me tell you, the Pharisees sacrificed and had to give dedication that was far greater than what the pastors of today have to do or full-time staff. I mean, they were extremely devout. And yet Jesus comes and he does the very opposite of convention of what it means to live a consecrated life. In other words, Jesus became unconsecrated for the sake of the people. I don't know if this shocks you. This is profoundly offensive to the religious, right? How does this look like today? If Jesus is alive today, he's in our midst, you know, I think you'll probably spend far more time outside the church than in the church. Oops. I think that you will be at parties more than he would be at meetings. <laughs> Jesus didn't just reach people. He reached the worst of the people, the most, the people, the very people that we are most uncomfortable with. People that we think are going to be against the gospel, maybe the liberals, human traffickers, and the likes, the people that we would ostracize. Jesus would go after these people. Now, my intention is not to undermine all the great work that has been happening in the church globally and all over, and in, in Cornerstone as well. But I think it is high time to remember the controversy that Jesus stirred because we need to recover some of these things. We need to examine, have we begun to set up barriers in church, in our lives, that prevents us from reaching the very people that God is after and loving, amen? I feel so passionate about this. <sighs> Jesus said this, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. You see, the word sick here is so mild to what its original language means. The original Greek word is kakos. Kakos means bad, evil. Because I'm telling you this, we would admit that, hey, I'm, I'm sick, I need this physician. But would you admit that you are bad? You're evil. Are you evil people? <laughs> but that's what it says here. And guess who identifies with this verse? Paul, the apostle, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, he said this, This is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, to save the bad, the evil, of whom I am chief, or I am the worst. Now, Paul wasn't giving some platitude. He wasn't trying to be humble about this. He actually believed that he's the most evil and the worst of the Lord. Of the Lord. He 
actually was convinced because he saw the true nature of who he was. And I'm telling you this, we need to recover some of that sight about the fact that we're not just sick, we are evil, we are bad. Because until we see that, we'll always see the people outside and say, oh, we're a little bit better than them. We're, we're, we're okay, we're respectable, we just maybe have some character flaw. But the Bible condemns all to have sinned and fallen short of the glory and in need of God. The funny thing about what Jesus said is that it's somewhat misleading as though there are people that are sick and there are people who are not sick. There are people who are righteous and there are those who, are, uh, who, are, who do evil. And yet, all, all are sick. All have sinned. And Jesus has come for everybody. You see, what's the application for us? The application for us is that church, church has always had the tendency to become a club. Church has always had the tendency to build walls and to isolate ourselves from the world because there's safety amongst the people that think exactly like we do, that behave and believes and has the same values as we do. It's always easier to associate people like that. And it takes great effort for us to go out to the world and to reach them and to love them. And we mustn't forget that is our mission. And God will go through great controversy to stir us out of our comfort zone in order to do this. I'm telling you this, there is something that is so needed in our nation. There is a season in the history of Singapore where people were getting saved. Where the, num the percentage of Christians in Singapore went from single digit percentage to double digit, but that growth has stopped because we have reached a place as a church in our nation that we are forgetting the mission. We're not reaching the laws. I'm stirring us up. Come on, we got to do this. And I'm asking you, you know, I'm not here to teach you how to do this. I'm not here to do five better ways of doing evangelism. You know, you have the Holy Spirit. All you need to do is say, Holy Spirit, today show me who needs the gospel. I, you know, I, last week, you know, I was in church. Pastor Dion was giving an altar call, you know, and he says, although any of you, you're in an addiction Come up, you know, God wants to break addictions. Pastor Elijah ran straight up to me. He said, Pastor Lip, you need to go for this altar call. You are addicted to gym. You're going to gym too often. I said, nonsense. I'm going to gym after this. <laughs> you know, the funny thing is, there's this guy in church that I see him in my neighborhood quite often. And... Then I stopped seeing him, and I stopped seeing him in church. And I just kept thinking all this time I walked by him, I, I never spoke to him, I never... And all of a sudden, I know, I know he's not in church anymore. And so that week, I went to gym. And lo and behold, I saw this guy in the gym. And I said to him, hey, I need your number, I need to have a meal with you, I need to talk to you. I, I'm just telling you, if you just open your eyes, I know God is here, but can I tell you this? God is out there as well. And when He's here, He wants to get us out there, not to stay here, right? And I want to encourage you. I really want to encourage you because church always likes to keep everybody in instead of putting everybody out. <sighs> 
The second controversy that Jesus stirred was when Jesus was questioned about fasting. And this has to do with the practices that we do here in church because John's disciples, the Pharisees, they kept a twice-weekly fast. It was something that they all did. It was like something every church in the country does. Tuesday, Thursday, fasting day, everybody fasts, right? And this was a well-established tradition and practice. And Jesus comes along and and he and his disciples, they don't fast at all. They don't, not one day in the week. I think three and a half years, Jesus walked on the earth. He didn't fast one day at all, okay? Except for those 40 days before he entered, you know, he came into ministry, right? And it wasn't that Jesus was against fasting. I think what Jesus was dealing with, he's dealing with our practices in the church and what we do because we take practices and we, and we take methodology and then we enshrine it and make it a must instead of being flexible about it. And this is a running problem in the church from simple things like the songs that we sing, and then every time a new move of God comes, there's a new you know, sound and a new song, and then we complain, I don't like this, I don't like this. You know, I, I, I want to sing hymns, more hymns. Yeah, yeah, we'll sing hymns, you know. But we need to embrace the new sounds that God is bringing in the church. People are arguing pews versus chairs, you know. Uh, more liturgy versus spontaneous prayer. Should we be more dressed up in church or should we be more dressed down? For a while, I was telling the staff, you know, I wanted to record part of my message today on my phone. I was going to wear shorts and preach the message, you know. I thought Pastor might fire me after that, you know. <laughs> but let's consider what Jesus gave as an answer, and that's found in Mark chapter 2, verse 19 to 22. And this is super familiar to us, but I want to read it to us in verse 19. Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom fast? while the bridegroom is here with them. As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them and then they will fast in those days. Verse 21, No one sews a piece of unstrung cloth on an old garment or else the new piece pulls away from the old and that tear is made worse. And because, you know, a a new piece of cloth will will shrink, right? And you put it on the old garment, when it shrinks, it'll tear the garment apart. So that's an ability to shrink. And then in verse 22, it says, no one puts new wine into old wineskin or else the new wine would burst, the wineskin wine will be spilled, the wineskin will be ruined and new wine must go into new wineskin. And new wine, on the other hand, has the, you know, has the innate ability to expand because the effervescence is still there. Now, if you look at all these three parts, there's a common thread that draws all of them together and that's got to do with time and timing. In the first part where it talks about the bridegroom, it's the wrong occasion, it's, it's about timing. In the, first, in the second and third portion that Jesus talks about, it's about the new and the old. And again, that's about timing, right? And, and so if you consider these three parts in detail, when it comes to the wedding, it is important that we must understand the occasion that we are in. And that's why we need to be prophetic. We need to know that there are times when the church just celebrates. You see, the, 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 Lord, the, the Lord said this, when you see the bridegroom, you don't fast because it's a wedding. Last night, we went to a wedding. Can you imagine? I go to a wedding and say, hey, I'm fasting. I'm just coming for the wedding. I'm not going to eat anything, you know? <laughs> we don't, you know? If I'm going to be fasting, I'm not going for the wedding and, and be tempted by it, okay? But when Jesus comes in warrior garments, then we know it's time to fast. It's time to battle. It's time to pray. It's time to put away the laughter because we need to know that there is season. There are times in it. And you know, seasons are not just momentary. Sometimes we enter into a new season where the world has changed and we need to adjust to that. Amen. I, I, I understand the principles behind our Sunday best, coming and dressing up and things like that. You know, and I think that there's value. There's wonderful things about that and that's great. But when we begin to dress up to a point where, the world, where people cannot identify us, we begin to distinguish ourselves so much until, until we become you know, completely different, then I, I think that 
there's some adaptation required. Amen? And it's not just about dressing, it's about many of the other things, the more important practices that we're doing. You see, when it comes, about, it comes to the new cloth, it is about the ability to shrink. And the church always needs to maintain the ability to trim down and to be pruned and to shrink and to draw back and to narrow our focus and to zoom into something. Amen? Because there'll be seasons when the, the Lord is going to say to the church, hey, stop your, stop your mirth, stop your laughter because it's time for war. It's time to pray, it's time to fast, it's time for the church to come together and we need to be able to come together fast. And we need to respond to that and say, this is the season, amen. And that is why I believe that as a church, we, you know, before this year ends out, we need to call for a season of prayer and fasting again for our nation and for what God is doing on the earth, amen. And then there is a new one, which is the ability to expand. It's the opposite of the, of, of the new cloth. And we need to be able to enlarge because God wants us to have the ability to enlarge. He wants to add things into our horizon. He wants to, us to enlarge our hearts. And it's the whole idea is to know what God is doing in this moment and to be able to adjust our practices, the practice of our faith according to that. Amen. You see, the practice of our faith must change according to times. The methodology, there is nothing sacred about the methodology, church. And here in Cornerstone, let me say this, we are beginning to reach a point where we are 30 years, you know, 35 years old, and we must remain flexible, we must remain new wineskin all the time here in Cornerstone, amen. And I, I, I'm telling you this, this is something that we must think about and we must make a decision because I'm telling you this, the methods of yesterday is not sufficient for today. And the expressions that brought revival yesterday is not the same ones that is needed to bring revival for today. And we need to know what the Spirit of God is saying. We need to distinguish truth from methodology. Be willing any time to abandon methodology, but always to hang on to the truth that the Lord has given to us. Amen. And finally, in the third controversy, Jesus questions the Sabbath. In Mark chapter 2, 23, all the way to the end, to Mark chapter 3, verse 6, Jesus made a concerted effort to change the way the people thought about the Sabbath. And in this portion, you know, you know the, the, the Lord's disciples, they plucked grain you know, on the Sabbath day, and then Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath day, and he was criticized for both of these instances. Now, you got to understand, Sabbath is not law. Sabbath is not man-made. Sabbath came from God on, during the creation. Six days God created, and on the seventh day, He rested. He established it as a principle. He established it as a law of the universe, right? And so Jesus isn't trying to do away with Sabbath, but the problem is by the time of Jesus, the Sabbath had become a behemoth of rules, regulations, and guidelines. Do you know today, if you go to Israel on the, on the day of Shabbat, you know, much of Israel comes to a standstill. And there are 39 categories of activities that are forbidden on, this, on Shabbat. I'm not talking about 39 activities, 39 categories of activities that is forbidden on Shabbat. You can't even press the lift. <laughs> there are all these things. And what is the point? And, and all these things has caused Sabbath to lose its power because Jesus said, hey, the Sabbath was created for men and not men for the Sabbath. You see, when God gives us the truth, some of these truths are meant for us. But we add so many things that in the end, the truth becomes something that enslaves us. That's what happened. The Sabbath became enslaving. The Sabbath became draining. The Sabbath became a burden. And the truth of the Sabbath is completely obscured by all the things that have been added to it. Are there things that we're doing in church today that has obscured 
the truth. What is supposed to give life becomes draining. What is supposed to bring liberation now brings bondage. Are there things like that in the church? I'm asking you to think about this. Are there things that we have done in our lives? I want to bring a conclusion to all this by saying this, that when it comes to people, we need to remove the barriers that are there for us to reach people, mentally, individually, corporately. When it comes to our practices, we need to revamp our practices that we, you know, we have according to the times. We need to stay relevant. It is so important for us to stay relevant in our practices. Amen. And the third is purpose. We need to recover the purpose for what we do, what we do. We need to constantly question, why do we do this? What is the purpose? Is the purpose being fulfilled? And these are things that we need to ask individually and corporately. Amen. You know, I want to say this, that our nation, the church in our nation, is in a critical moment. Right? And we're reaching a point that if the church doesn't rise up, if the church doesn't wake up, because I'm telling you, we've got such great government, we've got such great laws in our nation, that, that it's easy for us to become Christians. There are things that we don't have to contest for. But it, that is not going to hold true anymore. That is not going to hold true. And it is important for us to come back to our mission because God has given us the tools to win the loss. God has given us the tools to disciple nations and people and to bring the salt and the light of the gospel into society and to change society from the inside out. The power is in the church. But the problem is the church has stopped doing that because we've gotten so comfortable. We need to recover our passion for the loss. We need to revamp our practices so that the new generation of people can come in and understand what is it that we are doing. And we need to recover purpose and go back to the purpose for why we do what we do. I want to invite all of us to, to stand. And we're going to pray. Amen. I just feel so passionate about this. Really, really passionate. I've been asking the Lord personally in my life. I said to the, I've been saying to the Lord, Lord, I really want to give myself to prayer. There is an urgency for intercession. There is an urgency for prayer. And you know, I know God has raised up different people to do different things. Some people are doing amazing work in our nation. Some people are really preaching and, and, and reaching the lost, demonstrating signs and wonders in the streets and getting people saved. But I felt in my own heart that God is calling me to pray, to come into intercession for what lies ahead for the church. I truly, truly love the church, the bride of Christ. And I am passionate that we would rise up and be the, the fullness of what we're meant to be. I, I, I really believe the church is underperforming here in this nation according to the potential of God's kingdom and DNA that is in us. Amen. We are not wielding authority over sicknesses and over the devil. We're not walking our faith out in clear demonstration. And God wants to restore that. Amen. We've been caught up with the peripheral. Oh, this building's so nice. Hey, why got LED screen? Why it's got all these lights? More lights, less light, hymns. We've been caught up with all the things that don't matter. Instead of really focusing on what is the crux of what the Lord came for. Amen. And I want to ask you, as we bring this to a close, to join me in prayer. I really believe that God's eyes are looking upon His people who would say to Him, Lord, here am I, send me. I want to dedicate myself to the mission. You know, 
three scores in 10 years, if by reason of strength, 80. We have 80 years given to us. Anything more than that is a bonus. What are you using your life for? What are you going to use and spend your life on? I really want to spend my life doing God's work. I really want to spend my life being a witness for Jesus Christ to tell people what Jesus has done. Amen. Because what else is really worth it? What else is really worth it? And I want to invite us to pray. Our oh, dear Heavenly Father, we come to you. You are our Father. We are all your children. We're brothers and sisters standing before you, O oh Lord. And Father, what is Papa's will, Lord? What is your agenda, God? Where is your heart at, Lord? What are you looking at? Father, help us know that, Lord. And help us embrace that as our agenda, Lord. Father, I thank you that you've given me children. I thank you that you've given me children. And when my children come to me and say, Dad, what do you want us to do? What is on your heart? It so pleases me that I can say to my sons, this is what I want you to do. This is what I, where I want you to go. And Father, we just come to you, Lord, as your sons, your daughters, oh God, and we say to you, what is it that you want us to do? Help us, Lord, hear what is in your heart, Lord. Lord, we don't want to run to the left nor to the right, but we want to run in that lane and in that path that you've given to us, oh God. And Father, I just pray here in Cornerstone, I pray not just for Cornerstone, I pray for the church here in our nation, in Singapore, oh God, that Lord, if we've forgotten the fundamentals, oh God, we've forgotten truth, oh God, and Lord, if we have clouded the truth with our traditions, with our legalism, with our rules and our guidelines, Father, I pray for our nation and for the church that you begin to tear those things down in Jesus' name, oh God. Father, we ask you, oh God, that you begin to remove those peripherals, oh God, and cause our eyes again to see what truly is important to you, oh God. Let the church shake off our slumber. Let the church shake off, oh God, the things that we've been caught up with, Lord, the buildings, oh God, the programs, oh God, Lord, the structures, oh God, the prosperity, oh God, and let us come back, Lord, to what really, really matters to your heart, oh God. Father, I ask you now, Lord, that you would speak to all of us, Lord, and give us a sense of what is on your heart. Lord, I know this is something I cannot do, oh Lord, but you can, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, Lord, to speak to us, oh God. And for some of us, Lord, you're going to speak to us about the children in this nation. For some of us, you're going to speak about the lost, oh God, the most marginalized, oh God. For some of us, you're going to speak to us about the prostitutes that walk in our streets. For some of us, you're going to speak to us about the migrant workers, oh God. For some of us, you're going to speak, oh God, about those who are infirm and those who are in need of miracles, oh God. But Father, in your own way, I pray that you speak to every single heart and awaken our ears to hear, oh God. Father, there are unreached people in our nation, Lord, in terms of industries, Lord, where the Christian population is so small, so little, Lord, that it literally constitutes an unreached people. I pray, God, that you raise up men, women, Lord, that will penetrate, Lord, into those arenas, oh God, and begin to preach the gospel, Lord, and to begin to heal the sick, to cast out demons, to raise the dead, oh Lord, and to preach repentance of the kingdom of God, Lord. Father, I pray, Lord, oh God, I ask you, Lord, because only you can do this, Lord. 
I ask you, speak to us, Lord. Speak to us. Please, my God. Please, my God. Speak to us, oh God. Let our ears not be stuffed up anymore, oh God. Speak to us, oh God. Help us know the urgency of the hour, oh God. Father, we humbly come before you. We ask your forgiveness, Lord, for times where we've forgotten and we've created all kinds of man-made stuff, oh Lord. But Lord, we ask you, bring us back to what truly matters to you, Lord. Father, we submit our hearts to you. We just submit ourselves to you, Lord. Oh God, we just submit ourselves to you, oh Lord. And Lord, we ask this all in Jesus' name, Lord. And now I speak your blessings, God, over the congregation, your people, Lord, your inheritance, your beautiful bride, Lord. The blessings of God the Father, the blessings of God the Son, and the blessings of God the Holy Spirit be with you and abide with you now and forevermore. And everybody say, Amen. Come on, let's give the Lord a clap off and shout it. Thank you, Jesus. listened to a production of Cornerstone Community Church. Please note that all unauthorized reproduction, distribution, or sale of the recording is prohibited. For permission to reproduce or distribute the sermon, please write into mail at cscc.org.sg. We hope that you have been blessed.